following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Welcome this morning to Fellowship Bible Church. Let's turn our Bibles to Ezekiel 4. Ezekiel and chapter 4, please. Ezekiel is going to be told to act out a calamity that will come upon Jerusalem as part of his prophetic ministry. So chapter 4 says in Ezekiel, You also, son of man, take a clay tablet and lay it before you and portray on it a city, Jerusalem. Lay a siege against it, build a siege wall against it, and heap up a mound against it. Set camps against it also, and place battering rams against it all around. Moreover, take for yourself an iron plate, and set it as an iron wall between you and the city. Set your face against it, and it shall be besieged, and you shall lay siege against it. This will be a sign to the house of Israel. Lie also on your left side, and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their iniquity. For I have laid on you the years of their iniquity according to the number of the days, 390 days. So you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when you have completed them, lie again on your right side. Then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. I have laid on you a day for each year. Therefore, you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem Your arm shall be uncovered, and you shall prophesy against it. And surely I will restrain you so that you cannot turn from one side to the other till you have ended the days of your siege. Now, this has probably confused some readers because they think, well, he's immobilized for 390 days on his side. It's actually what was happening was that he was having a portion of his day given over to his prophetic ministry because he had other instructions that we'll read here about preparing himself food and things. So this was not 24-7 that he was lying on his side for 390 days and then for 40 days. This was a portion of his day that was uh, to be assigned to the people of Israel so they could see it. Verse number 9, And also take for yourself wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spelt, and put them into one vessel, and make bread of them for yourself. During the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days, you shall eat it. So obviously he has to make bread, this Ezekiel bread as they call it, uh, you know, daily or every other day or whatever to uh, provide for himself some nourishment. And your food which you shall eat uh, shall be by weight, 20 shekels a day. From time to time you shall eat it. You shall also drink water by measure, one-sixth of a hin from time to time you shall drink. And you shall eat it as barley cakes and bake it using fuel of human waste in their sight. Then the Lord said, So shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles where I will drive them. Poor Ezekiel has been given a nasty assignment to portray what is going to happen to Jerusalem, to Israel, and to Judah because of their idolatry and punishment by God. Verse 14, So I said, Ah, Lord God, indeed I have never defiled myself from my youth till now. I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has abominable flesh ever come into my mouth. And so Ezekiel actually appeals to God and says, Could you change the instructions? Because it's a little bit too much for me. I don't want to defile myself because I am, you know, after all, a person who has kept myself uh, for you and pure. So then he said to me in response, uh, God replies, See, I am giving you cow dung instead of human waste, and you shall prepare your bread over it. Now, I would say that's marginally better. <laughs> okay. Uh, it, it gets the point across, doesn't it, that, uh, well, let's read on. Verse 16, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, surely I will cut off the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety and shall drink water by measure and with dread. So again, his measure of food and water was a part, a part of this picture as well. That they may lack bread and water and be dismayed with one another and waste away 
not because of their hunger, ultimately. It was because of their iniquity is the reason why this occurred to them. So we'll find out more about that. And uh, you can read some of the history of the siege and what happened there and other portions of the Old Testament. And it is a a very difficult situation, to be sure. Please uh, take your Bibles, if you would, and turn them to the letter of Paul to Titus. In chapter 2, the last portion of chapter 2, we want to address some of the the text that is there in verses 11 to 15. One reason why we ask you to turn your Bible to the same place where I am is so that you can learn not only by ear, but also by sight, more channels into your brain and heart equals better. So... Uh, this is why, and in fact, if you uh, are one who likes to take notes as well, that is a third channel in, and in fact, uh, taking handwritten notes has been shown to be a great way to learn because what you, you can't write down everything that the person says, and nor would I ever encourage you to do that, but if I make a salient point to you and, and uh, you think of an application, then you can jot that down. You can synthesize what you're hearing. You can write a summary of it uh, because you can't write as fast probably as I can talk unless you know Greg's shorthand, which uh, probably very few of you actually do these days. (laughs) Yeah, you know a different kind of shorthand, right? (laughs) Yes, all right. Um, So another way for us to learn. And and one of the reasons why I give you these notes, too, is so that you don't have to try to rush to write things down. Uh, These are the same notes that I preach from, so you're getting uh, everything there that is at least jogging my memory as to what I want to say for you this morning. I am encouraging you to memorize this section of Scripture. Um, If I were to say why, I would say, well, let's just compare, say, to some of the the genealogical information we've been reading in 1 Chronicles. I I wouldn't recommend you to go to that as a first stop for memorizing Scripture. It's not as important for your life to know those genealogies as it is to know this. Listen, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one despise you." This is an expositional message of Scripture, which means it's an explanation and application of the text of Scripture designed so that you might understand and obey the text of Scripture because this is God's Word. Last time we learned about the appearance of God's saving grace in the first coming of Christ. And maybe what I should have done then is made more clear, and I will now just by way of summary statement, that it's not only the appearance of of Christ. You might think appearance in, in kind of a, a summary fashion just means, well, he showed up, like he appeared to your eyes, to the, to the eyes of humanity. But actually, it's not the appearance only, it's the work of Christ done during that appearance that is the significant issue. He gave himself as a substitutionary atonement on the cross, and that is what brought the saving grace to humanity. That grace has brought deliverance from spiritual death. And I say in the notes for all people, that is, the deliverance is available. No one can say it's not available. It is available, but it's only obviously efficacious to those to whom faith and the gifts of repentance and faith are granted. So I say it's, it's not made effective universally, but it is available universally. It's universally accessible in this appearance to all men not saving all, but rather as the saving basis for all to come to God through Christ by faith. If you don't come, there's no effect. There's no saving effect other than, now there's no effect, but there is one effect. If you don't come, 
you are heightening your condemnation before God. You know that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. You know that you rank right at the top of the list of sinners. Each and every one of us does. And since you know that, and you know that Jesus died to offer himself in your place, and if you reject that, I'm not, you, you know, you're not some person that grew up out in the jungle and never heard the gospel. They, they have their own problems before the Lord and without excuse, but you don't have that problem, okay? If you trample underfoot the grace of Christ, if you scoff at this and say, eh, no thanks, I don't want it, that's a nice legend for you people that are weak religionists, but that's not for me. You just know that your condemnation before God will be heightened because you have rejected his way of salvation. Now, we pick up then with the verses that we left off with last time. We did basically treated verse 11 and part of verse 13 last time. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So we looked at that. We delved into that a little bit. And we looked at this issue of the last part of 13 where it says, uh, of the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we looked at that and we said, do you remember what we said about that? How many people are being discussed there in that portion of the verse? Just one who is known as the God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and he's ours, and he's the great one. Okay, we'll look at that, uh, Lord willing, by the end of this message in in not so much to focus on the oneness of this person, but on some other facets of that phrase. Last time, it was the grace of God that brought salvation has made its appearance. Okay, that was the, the saving grace. Today, it's teaching grace. That's our title, teaching grace on the Christian life. God's grace trains us to live godly and to look for Christ's second coming. So this is grace teaching today, not grace saving. We looked at that last week. That's all part of the same Christian package, of course. God's favor not only saves, it also teaches. It saves, that is evangelism. It teaches, that's what we call discipleship. God's grace saves in evangelism and teaches us as we grow into more mature discipleship. The proper source of spiritual teaching is God's grace. You say, well, that's obvious from the text. Yeah, but that's not obvious to the world. And that can be lost on us because we might say, well, it's not God's grace that teaches, it's science that teaches. It's uh, philosophy that teaches. The world teaches. School teaches. Books teach. Media teaches. The proper source of teaching for us is the grace of Christ. If what you're learning or what you're doing contradicts what the grace of Christ teaches, then what you are learning or doing is wrong. You might use this, parents, with your children. Think about how you are to be a gracious teacher toward them, a teacher of God's grace, a teacher of grace, a gracious teacher, but, you know, son or daughter, is what you're doing, does, it, does that line up with the grace of Christ? Um, not does it line up with the law, you know, some law that's been laid down. Does it line up with love for God and love for neighbor? Does it line up with what the grace of Christ teaches you? And if it doesn't, then obviously a change needs to be effected in your life. Does the grace of Christ teach the kind of lawless, divisive, hateful, murderous activity that goes on today? Does the grace of Christ teach those kinds of things? To ask the question is to answer it. Does the grace of Christ teach us to be gossips, to be lazy, to be fearful, to be full of lust, to be proud, to look down upon others? The grace of Christ does not teach those things. So you know those things are taught from somewhere else, from beneath, perhaps, from the world, perhaps, from the flesh. Those are the teaching sources that are against us. Grace as a teacher, 
however, means more than just a conveyance of information. This is one of those things that, ideas that's important to make sure we understand. Uh, we're not conveying information here in a merely a classroom type of setting so that you can, well, we don't even have tests here. We probably should have. But actually, once you go out of these walls, that is the test out there. Life is a test. Here you're studying for the test. Here you're trying to prepare for the test. So this is not classroom-style teaching, as some have, have I, I believe, wrongly accused a church like this of being. Well, it's just a classroom church. Well, we can't live seven days a week in these walls. We have to live out there in our workplace, in our schools, in our communities, in our neighborhoods. That's where life happens, okay? Um, so the grace teaching here is not the conveyance merely of information. This is what we could think of it as grace training. It's training. It's, it's discipleship. It's growing in maturity. This is an, it's like an apprenticeship model that grace does for us. It is discipline in the old school model of education. Sometimes it's difficulty. Uh, it offers difficulty. Sometimes it's painful. Uh, you know, but in this way, it deeply educates and develops a person into someone more like Jesus Christ. Okay, so we're being trained. Grace is an entirely different sort of thing than law. Let's think on that for just a moment. We have people who claim that the Christian life is lived to obey law. That is incorrect. We've addressed that subject many times from this pulpit, but law is not the methodology by which we live under God. And I might add, it's not the methodology that we should teach our young people. Now, sometimes, you know, we have house rules and you know, they can do this and you can't do that and that sort of thing. But we really, really want to quickly graduate out of, you know, the, the five-year-old version of things and, and teach our children that we're to live by grace, not by law. You know, was that a gracious, kind thing that you did with your brother or sister? Not that, you know, you know the thou shalt not was just violated, you know, commandment number 73 on the, on the refrigerator. That's not how it is, okay? How many did you have? <laughs> Infinite number, okay, right. They were, they were, yeah, they weren't written down, right? You just expected to know and, and obey. Yeah. So, but grace is an entirely different sort of thing than law. We don't live, we don't, we don't get saved by law of any sort. We don't live by law, we live by God's grace. Now we have in the secular world legislators who live and love to make law. Any major criminal act is supposed grounds for creating some new law, even though it was a criminal act, so there already was a law against it, I would assume. Uh, all of that is futile. Only when somebody lives by the instruction of grace will they succeed to mortify the flesh. You will find that in your own life as you deal with temptation and sin, that it's the grace of Christ that teaches you to overcome that sin, not merely don't do that self, don't think that, you know, don't go there. You have to express or understand that grace and express it coming out of your life. Attempting to be justified by the law as opposed to grace. The law pointed out sin, Romans 3.20 tells us, and grace abounds to overcome sin. John chapter 1 and verse 17 says the law came through Moses, but it, you know, remember Galatians tells us it was a schoolmaster. It was like a tutor just to bring us along, the, us meaning the human race, bringing the Jews along in an early stage of spiritual development. But that stage is over. We're now in the adult stage where we've been as Christians adopted as adult children of God and are expected to behave as adult children of God. John 1.17 says the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So grace came in Christ, and it teaches us a number of things. What things does it teach us? 
look at the verse in verse number 12 and 13. And you can pick these out, hopefully, yourself, and you'll see where my outline comes from very easily. Teaching us that. Here's the content of the teaching now, okay? Syllabus, first day of class, what's on the syllabus? Number one, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. Number two, live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Number three, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's all we're going to be able to get to the rest of this morning. We're going to think about what is the curriculum of the grace training program that God has put us into. You know, when you get saved, that's what happens. You're automatically enrolled in the school of grace, automatically, and it is a lifelong endeavor. You never ultimately graduate in this life. You will graduate at the rapture or at the second coming of, uh, of Christ's ra- uh, rapture or, or when you're taken to heaven, you will graduate that way as well. But grace, first of all, teaches us to deny ungodliness. Grace and ungodliness are like oil and water. They don't mix. They're like matter and antimatter. They really don't mix, if you've studied what that is. Denying ungodliness means to eschew sinful, ungodly, lustful activities. The kinds of things that you as a Christian know are wrong are off limits. This includes putting anything ahead of God, loving sinful things, coveting, immorality, misusing God's name. Eschew these things thinking lustful fantasies, looking at lustful images, becoming drunk, being addicted to anything, maintaining a pattern of complaint, gossip, laziness, fear, gluttony, and the like. The works of the flesh, Paul says in Galatians 5, are evident, which are these. And then he goes on and lists them for three verses, kinds of things that are that are not according, according to God's grace. They're totally outside of that realm. Any of those sins mentioned in chapter 1 of Titus are, are off limits. The insubordinate, idle talkers, deceivers, those who hold the doctrine of circumcision, it was called. You know, you must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved, in order to be sanctified. That was put to rest in Acts chapter 15. That is not true but there was a bunch of people who still taught that, even still today teach that. Uh, they subvert whole households. They look for dishonest gain. They're liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. We looked at all of that when we studied that portion of Scripture. Um, if you're unsure if anything is in accordance with the grace of God and His teaching, uh, or if you're feeling the desire to rationalize something, you know, it's okay. It's not really a sin, or maybe it's a sin. No, it's not really a sin. No, when you get into that mode of thinking, you need to, you need to back off and you need to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. And you might ask a trusted Christian friend, what do you think about this? And if you're too embarrassed to ask them, then maybe that's just a sign that the grace of Christ has taught you already and you just haven't learned the lesson that you need to learn, Okay. Yeah, if it's not of faith, it's sin. If it's not of the grace of Christ, it's sin. If it's not in this, not in accordance with this curriculum, then it's off, off limits. Sometimes this is easy for us to deny ungodliness because, you know, the sins that you think of, you know, you think out in the world, you know, the really bad stuff, that's all disgusting to us. It doesn't tempt us at all. It makes us sick. But other times... Denying ungodliness is hard because there are things that our particular flesh likes, you different than me, but we still need to deny those things that are ungodly things. Now, we need to admit, you know, well, we don't want to admit that we need to change, of course, but we need to change. Now, denying ungodliness, as you've probably picked up already, means more than just talk. It means more than just saying or even not just doing ungodly things. It means avoiding them and hating them. Okay? 
It's to turn away from those things, to turn away from ungodliness. 2 Timothy uh, 2.19, since we're right there, I'll just turn there. Uh, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having the seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Get away from it. It's not only verbal opposition, this denial of ungodliness, but it's a repudiation, it's a refusal, it's a, it's a denial, it's a distancing from ungodliness. Just say no to such things. Yet, denying ungodliness is only one-third of the curriculum that grace teaches. Avoiding the wrong is only one part of the curriculum. We're also told to replace ungodly behavior with godly behavior, which has many advantages. One of those is, as you replace ungodly behavior with godly, you have less time for ungodly behavior, right? So secondly, not only grace teaches us to deny ungodliness, but it also teaches us to live soberly and righteously. Look at verse 12, the second part of it. It says, after denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now, the text in Greek in the word order is something like this. Sensibly and righteously and godly we should live in this present age. You get that? Paul brings forward the three descriptive words and puts at the back, we should live. The attributes here are brought forward, the we should live put to the back, giving the sentence a good emphasis in our heads. Now, we should live, for all you grammarians out there is what I understand to be a hortatory subjunctive, okay? Some of your eyes just popped out of your head there. Don't worry about it. You know what it means? It's a command. It's, it's in the subjunctive mood, but it's used in such a way that it's saying, you know, this is what we must do. It's basically the as, uh, orders from headquarters. It's an exhortation. It boils down to a plain and simple command. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly means this is a moral obligation laid upon Christians as an imperative. There's no excuse now for licentious living. No theology that can support living in the flesh and professing faith in Christ at the same time. There's no comfort for those who profess godliness but deny it. And remember, we ran into that at the end of verse, uh, chapter 1, rather, in verse number 16. There are people who profess to know God, but in works they deny Him. They're abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Let me just pa- park there for just one second, if you'd allow me. You hear all the time, not all the time, but whenever substantive conversations come up between people who are anti-religion and those who are pro, the anti-religious people say something like this. Well, Religion is the cause of all the world's problems. No, false religion is the cause of all the world's problems. I mean, you look at somebody, well, the, the church did this, you know, the Inquisition, the church did this, the, uh, you know, the, the Crusades, the Middle Ages. Well, there are a lot of people who profess to know God, but in works they deny him. Unfortunately, even some in the Reformed side of Christianity who thought themselves to be not only pastors but also governors and mayors of cities and so on, even kings, if you will, and took that prerogative to themselves and and burnt people at the stake for misbelief and, and all of this. That was not acting like a Christian, I am sorry to say. I'm not sorry to say. They're fleshly. That was evil stuff. And so it's a, little bit, it's a little bit tiresome when people keep repeating this mantra over and over. It's religion that's the cause of the problems in the world. No, does anybody realize that there can be people who are frauds, who say they believe in God, but they don't really? You know, they, they kill God's servants, missionaries, or these churches and people who killed Anabaptists years ago. Why? Because they believed in baptizing people who professed faith as adults, and so they Anna-re-baptized them? What's wrong with that? Nothing's wrong with that. We would be Anabaptists according to what they, they, how they looked at it. 
hundreds of years ago, and yet those people were rounded up and killed because of their belief. The people that did that were professing godliness, but they were not living it. And, it, you know, God's very clear in the Scriptures. Whole bunches of people profess godliness. Those Pharisees that were alive when Jesus was on earth, they profess godliness. You know, all of those people born in sin, they said to the man born blind in John chapter 9 who was healed. You teach us? Yeah, he knew a lot more than they did already, even though he had only known Christ for a few minutes. So get this in your mind and bake it in. And if you're listening out there to this, hey, wake up to the reality that there are false professors of, of faith, people that don't know truly know the Lord, and they live as the devil under the guise of religion. The world is full of that today. You hear all these stories on the news about people who uh, are abusing children under the name of the church. But you have the same thing in the in the totally secular world too, right? People abusing children in the Boy Scouts and all of that. Well, why, why is that commonality there? Not because there's faith in one and not faith in the other. They're both of the same cloth. It's all the secular cloth, even though it's called by the name Christian in some cases and not in other cases. Okay, So they profess to know God. But there's no room in true Christianity for people to live like the devil, we're called by grace, which is our teacher, to live in three ways, soberly, righteously, and godly, sensibly, prudently, in a self-controlled manner, thoughtfully. The body and the mind and sobriety are cooperating in a manner that's influenced by the Spirit of God and makes sense to other people. You know, it's off limits, therefore, for Christians uh, you know, to have non-medicinal substance use or abuse, alcohol, smoking, wild body movements that people do like in rock concerts. You know, their mind has been disconnected from their body and is being run by emotion. That happens a lot in charismatic churches, by the way. This is not sober, sensible, prudent, self-controlled. This is how you live, particularly with respect to yourself, okay? But then it's also, we're called by grace to live righteously. This character of the grace-taught believer is to be just and upright like Jesus was in private and in public, especially with respect to others. So you live yourself as a sober-minded person. You live righteously toward others. And then look at the third one. It says what? Godly godly in the present age. This means piously. You know, there's a lot. Now, let me say it this way. There is a huge lack of piety in our day. Churches look a lot like the world. In fact, churches make it their goal to look a lot like the world so they welcome people in from the world and make them feel comfortable. That's not correct. Okay, The church is an otherworldly institution. It's an otherworldly organism. It's an otherworldly community. It's under the headship of Christ. It doesn't look like the world. It's different than the world. Very different. It's, it's designed to be different. It's not designed to, to mimic the world in different aspects. So we're to be reverent, devout, respectful toward God, devoted to Him. You know, our lives would match what would be expected for somebody living in the presence of God. You know you are living in the presence of God, right? Actually, might I say, you're living, if you're a believer, with the presence of God in you. Not just that He's out there looking. The believer is the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, specially ministering in Him to save and sanctify And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, and 20, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, and so you can't go and join them in immorality or all this other kind of unsober stuff. It just doesn't fit. I mean, how uncomfortable God must be to see the embarrassing behaviors that we do in our sin before Him because we are living in His presence. His presence is living in us who are Christians. Now, 
One more note on this verse. We are living this way in the present age. There's no time like the present, is there? The only time when you're alive to live godly in Christ Jesus is the present. It does no good to say, I'll start tomorrow, you know, like every good diet. I'll start tomorrow. Next Tuesday, right. On any righteousness project in which you're working on yourself, start today, right now. Do something, you know, do you have something to do in your life where you have to say no to yourself? Start right now. You know, if it's a food problem, the extra snack, dessert, or portion at mealtime, say no. The temptation to jump on somebody instead of stopping to think. Start saying no to yourself right now. The desire for sinful pleasure. Give it a strong, resounding no and do it right now. We live in the present age. Now, all of this is made more difficult by the fact that the present age doesn't refer only to you know, the time on your watch. It refers to the world system that is trying to entice and encourage you to live in an ungodly, unsober, unsensible, unrighteous way because the present age is evil. Did I just say that? (laughs) It's wicked. Paul says it's a perverse generation in which they lived. We live in the same. It's just a continuation of the same thing. Okay? Okay. Uh, the age in which we live, Galatians 1.4 says, is an evil age. These are the last times. Evil men and seducers have and are getting worse and worse, deceiving others and being deceived themselves. It's a mess out there, my friends. It's a perverse time in which we live. And so we're to live opposite of that in this age. Now, maybe you've been... Maybe we all have been a little bit sheltered, but uh, we just had an incident that happened to us earlier this week that alerted me again and reminded me of the large number of people who have done very perverse things who are all around us in this world. You can find them on the offender registries online, you know. there, And then you just forget about that. That almost... It's almost so commonplace, we don't even deal with it in our minds. But what about the things going on out in other nations of the world, the injustices and the, uh, the stealing and the poverty and the abuse by the leaders in these nations and, and all of these things? The world is full of evil things, and we ought to look different than that. Training grace Teaching grace shows us how to live properly, to live righteously. It's eschewing evil. It's pursuing good. But we now move on to the third item in the grace teaching curriculum. And it moves beyond a do this or don't do that on the basis of God's grace. It's, it's, this is a forward-looking matter. Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So grace teaches us not only to deny sin and to live holy, but also tells us to look up. Because our salvation draws near. Look up. You, you hear me say that sometimes. Keep looking up, brother. You know, And you might say that to me when things are a little down. Keep looking up. Maybe today. You know, we live in waiting for the return of our King Jesus from heaven. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10 says that we have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. That's what we're doing. We're waiting. Now, this, it says here, we're looking for what? A blessed hope, first of all. Hopefully, you've heard that the blessed hope is not a pie-in-the-sky wish. It's not a legend. It's not merely a fake balm to make us feel better as we go through the suffering of life. This hope is a certainty. Illustration of the word hope. The Apostle Paul, when he was on trial, remember in the book of Acts, he said a couple of times, but one 
very controversial time. He said, because he saw the, the, the division of the audience in Pharisees and Sadducees, and the Sadducees don't believe in resurrection. So he said, for the hope of the resurrection of the dead, I am here being tried. So very good, you know, slick political move because well, these, you got these guys arguing against these guys, and these guys are like, oh, it sounds good to us, you know. And these guys are like, oh, man, what a miscreant, you know. And so that messed up the whole trial uh, because they couldn't keep themselves under control. But uh, the hope of the resurrection of the dead, he was certain, and he preached, that Christ arose from the dead and we will also. Are you certain of that truth? That is certainty, my friends. The reality that Jesus is coming back is another of our fond hopes as a Christian. It's a blessed hope because it's a joyous expectation, a happy occasion to which we eagerly look forward. I hope you look forward to it. Sometimes we think, eh, you know, I don't want to be ashamed before him at his coming. But on balance, Christians should and do look forward to the coming of the Messiah back to the earth. Anyone who longs, not just Christians, my friends, but I say this to, to even non-Christians, listen. Anyone who longs for the wrong things in this world to be fixed, for poverty to be ameliorated, for evil to be addressed, where crime is reduced, where living standards are elevated, where corruption in government is eliminated, anybody who's looking for that ought to be hoping and looking for the return of Jesus Christ because he's going to do all those things in his kingdom. Everybody's out there looking for, you know, solutions to all those problems I just mentioned. New laws for crime, uh, you know, new redistribution to help poverty, uh, you know, health issues, all of these things. Everybody's casting around looking for solutions. The solution is here in Christianity. Already Christ has come and made the world a 100 times better place than it was for, 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 for everybody. But when he comes back, he's going to do it again, only probably 10,000 times better than what it was in terms of the world condition. So it's a blessed hope. It's a joyous expectation. On the other hand, if you're bent on doing evil, you don't want God in your business. You know, like some of us say, I don't like the government in my business. So some people say, I don't want God in my business. I don't believe in God. You don't believe the fact that Jesus came the first time and... He's going to come again. It's not a, the second coming is not a blessed hope to you if you're that way. It's a blasted hope. It's a dreadful hope. It's an irritating hope. It's not, in fact, a hope at all. You deny it and you mock it. You know, where is the promise of his coming, they mock, Second Peter 3, 4. Because, you know, the second coming of Christ is a very inconvenient truth. You do not want to have to deal with it because if you're an unbeliever, it means accountability for your sinful life. It means, you know, you're rejecting the king. And Psalm 2 tells us, you know, kiss the son. Do homage to him lest he become angry with you in the way and you're destroyed. But people who scoff at the coming of Christ do so in part because they don't want to have to deal with that reality. We have a blessed hope, and then we have, the text says next, a glorious appearing. Now, this is interesting because it is the epiphany of glory. That's what it says in the Greek text. It's the epiphania, the epiphany of glory. There are six New Testament verses that use the word, the noun, epiphany. And four of them, at least, maybe five, refer to the second coming of Christ. But when I say the word epiphany, what do most people think of? The first coming. It truly was an epiphany. It was an appearing of God's grace. Uh, most people think epiphany, you know, 12 days after Christmas, the Magi, Christ being revealed to the Gentiles, that part of the Christmas holiday. But just as much, and in fact more, than the first epiphany, the word epiphany should call to mind the second epiphany, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The appearance here, notice, look at that text. What is the appearance of? Is it an event? 
Is it a time? Is it a thing? It will be of Christ, a person. That's what we look forward to. With him will be all the radiant glory that is only rivaled by those prior appearances of God in history. You think of, uh, you know, show me your glory, Moses. Well, you can only see a part of it. If you see the whole thing, you'll be blasted away. You'll be vaporized. Uh, you, they saw, the Israelites saw the glory of the pillar of cloud and fire leading them on in the wilderness journeys for all those years. Uh, some saw the glorious appearing of pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. The disciples saw him in his regular garb, if you will, and then they saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration, shining like nothing could ever shine anywhere else in the world. This is a display of his glory. Never has such a glorious sight as what this talks about ever been seen prior to revelations of God. And all those, those weren't even, they don't even kind of match up to this because they were short, temporary things. This is going to be the glory of Christ for a thousand years appearing on the earth, bringing, bringing us at the rapture and then coming down and to reign upon the earth. I'm not really making a big difference here between the rapture and the second coming. I can do that another time, but it's all part of the same program. Think of the revelation of God to Ezekiel. Remember we read about that? That strange vision he saw in the first couple chapters of his prophecy. That's a revelation of the glory of God. Peter calls it this. He says, you're looking for the arising of the day star when it dawns in your hearts. Now, this is talking about the coming of the kingdom. The world thus far has lived in relative darkness. Now, Christ did bring light. Remember, John chapter 1 tells us that Christ did bring light. But compared to what's coming, we have been living in darkness. Moral darkness, governmental darkness, societal darkness. Acts 1.11, the light went up, and the same light is coming back down, the angels told the disciples. Finally, we're told that we're looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of Christ, who is our great God and Savior, Jesus. So he's described here with six or seven words. First of all, he's God, that's a title. He's Savior, that's another title. He's Christ. You know what that word means, right? Messiah or anointed one. That's another title. And he's given one personal name, Jesus. Okay? By the way, so God, we might think of God as a personal name, but it's actually a title. Okay? He gave his name in the Old Testament, didn't he? Not God, G-O-D, but Y-H-W-H, Yahweh it's called. That's the, the personal name of our Lord, if you will, of our God. And the and here, the great God and Savior, ties them all together in one single person. We saw that last time in Titus 2.13 when we studied it. Uh, whatever you believe about the rapture, as do I, or if you believe the second coming itself is, is referenced here, doesn't matter as much as this fact that I'm going to say right now. It is Jesus who is our blessed hope and his appearing and coming back Again, he will appear. We are looking for him. Grace teaches us not only to deny ungodliness, not only to live soberly, righteously, and godly, but it also teaches us to look for him, the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace teaches us to watch for Christ, not events, not signs of the times, not confluences of circumstances, not patterns of evil, not blood moons, not special dates, not anything else. We're looking for Christ, the coming of Christ. And one final little note on this. Do you notice this where it says, the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our what? Great. You know, there was a, a place in the book of Acts where the craftsmen got together and they said, you know, this Paul, he's really messing us up because we're making these silver statues of this goddess Diana Artemis and uh, our business is we're going to go out of business because he's going to turn everybody away from the great 
goddess Diana. And they went on and chanted for two hours in this massive mob of confusion. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. There is only one great God, my friends. There's only one true and living God, but there's only one great God, and that is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, not any of the false gods. So we learned about saving grace in the last message. In this one, we learn about teaching grace, which we could also call sanctifying grace, couldn't we? Yeah, we're... we're and, and by the way, next time we're going to see sacrificing grace in verse 14, but that's for next week. God has explained through Paul the basis for living and doing church the way that was commanded in chapters 1 and 2. The basis for that is the grace of God that brings salvation and brings sanctification. It teaches us to look forward to the coming of Christ, and that's sufficient motivation for us to live the Christian life. You don't need anything else to motivate you to live the Christian life. These two things, salvation and sanctification, are inseparable. I made the big point. You cannot profess to know God and then works deny Him. Okay? That's not Christianity. You must profess God and your grace-driven works must demonstrate the reality of that profession. And so we're not at all hesitant to talk about good works, but good, a good life. Good works do not cancel grace or we certainly don't obtain grace. That's not what grace is. They are the fruit of grace. Good works are the fruit of grace and grace trains and enables that kind of life. You see that? That's a key statement. It trains us to live that way, but it also enables us from within, causes us to have desires to live that way. If you've been transformed by God's grace, you want nothing more than to please your Lord. You want to live for Him. It's not a burdensome thing. It's not like when pastor says, you know, live soberly, righteously, and godly. You're like, oh, man, I hate doing that. No, you love living that way because you know it's for your good and it's for God's glory. Grace trains, grace enables, grace teaches us to live godly, to deny ungodliness, and to look for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of Christ. Let us pray as we close. Father in heaven, we thank you for the blessing of being able to look at the word today. Thank you for letting me study it this past week and be able to put together what I hope is a fairly organized presentation of what this text teaches us. We certainly have seen some of the applications of it. And now, Lord, it's time for your people to understand it and to obey it. I don't see how we can have much of an excuse. Oh, we may, like, what was that little point, or I forgot that or something, but the big picture is clear. Lord, train us. Continue us in the school of grace. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.